0: Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to the second stage with your hosts Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick.
1: Hello everybody. Welcome to the second stage. It's Brendan Anderson and Jeff Cadlick.
2: So, Brendan, another good show this week. I'm really excited. And I, you know what? I have to say, I'm sorry that you missed the last show.
1: Yeah, I feel like I've been kind of uh, MIA, although I did enjoy vacation, Jeff. I know you find that hard to believe. Uh, and, I, and I almost never called in, almost. So, uh, and, and actually, it, was, it killed me because uh, you know, I've been uh, friends with Zucker, Tom Zucker, through EO for a very long period of time. So uh, you know, I was uh, glad you guys could hit that off and, and uh, you behaved, uh, I, I hear, uh, or I understand pretty well. Well, it
2: it did go well, but the big talk last week was the fact that uh, you weren't in the office and that you were getting incredibly annoying and overly tense before you left. So it was good that you left oh, and relaxed. Good. And-
0: <laughs> <Good>. But you <laughs> know, it,
2: it is interesting. Let me just – this week I talked to a number of people who said that they're actually making their vacations a little bit longer because it does take them three or four days to decompress and they are using that auto response, the email finally, because they're just like they just can't do anymore and they really need to decompress. So they're going to do something
1: crazy. Well, as you know, I don't know whether it was a mistake or one of those mistakes I made, made you know, kind of subliminally on purpose. But I actually told the, uh, my auto responses I'd be back on August 5th. So uh, as far as I know, the people that sent me emails think I'm you know, going to take the summer off, which, you know, quite frankly, probably you know, sounds like a pretty good idea. It but it's amazing, as, as you know, uh, Jeff. That it's amazing how fast attention returns because so we got lots of great stuff going on, and uh, and we just you know kind of as you know we uh, just did another one of our um, our first quarterly uh, strategy meeting as part of EOS, and uh, I think it went very well. It was uh, you know it really does set uh, set us up to uh, charge after the next ninety days. It does, and.
2: Uh, You know, there are a lot of meetings as part of EOS, and sometimes I have to admit, uh, and I've admitted to you that I, I, you know, feel like we should be working as opposed to strategizing. But every time we do it, I feel very, very good about the meeting. And at the end of the EOS meetings, you always rate the meetings, and of the six people that were there, uh, five were nines, and we had one ten. So everybody else agreed with uh, the the
1: positive nature of the meeting well in my in my uh, i think every entrepreneur makes a come you know Comments: I can't afford, or I don't have the time to do that right now. And my standard reply is, you know, you don't have the time not to do it because it does, in fact, save time. And I had to chuckle, and I know this wasn't what we were going to talk about this first uh, segment, Jeff. But you know, I I can't remember those things, um, but I did have to chuckle. You know, it, it's uh, it's been a huge relief uh, to me. You know, you've taken over, you know, the operations meetings, and to not sit in those, I thought would kill me. I mean, I literally thought it would kill me. And when I was uh, going out to lunch. Uh, Earlier, uh, you know, the, in the last couple of days here, and you guys were in the meeting. I was, I was happy not to be there. I got to be honest with you.
2: <laughs> and I, I, this, I. Everyone's had the same reaction: was I'm too busy with my own uh, to dos and rocks. I don't have time to be in that meeting. I'm, thank God, somebody else is dealing with that. And the system, you know, that that system is going to get results to that meeting whether you're there or not. And I think that's yep. one of the key. Uh, benefits of, of running a system. But circling back to a good friend, Tom Zucker, he actually did a very good job for being an ADD entrepreneur, uh, as we lovingly say. Uh, he was very articulate, ticked off a lot of great ideas. And you know, he, he gave, one of the highlights, I thought, from the call was the five factors that drive value in a process uh, that somebody like him would run. And His point was only in a process are you going to maximize value for your business. Now, there's other reasons people may not want to end up in a process, but to maximize value, a process he believes is key. And the first was – Buyer competition, you know, that discipline process with multiple buyers is just like when you're selling your house, you want to have a real estate agent that throws a sign in the front yard. Same thing when when selling a business, Um, the quality of the management team is very key to driving value for for a business. Uh, Your know, unique defensible niche you know, is a fairly obvious one uh, uh, that's going to sustain themselves regardless of what part of the cycle that you're in. Uh, and low customer concentration, this is something that you and I have heard from a few people that really drives value is just not having to rely on a handful of customers for, for – and, and that's typically how small companies grow, right? They Absolutely. ride the coattails of a big company. And then well, the last. And, one, and I'll let you do the
1: last one, then I want to go back to customer concentration. Yeah, sure. I
2: am going to wait. And then the last one was organic growth and and recurring revenue. And what I always say about uh, what creates value is predictability. And I think certainly the last four of those
1: five is about driving predictability. So go ahead well i I you know we see we 're blessed to see about four hundred small businesses a year, and uh, it 's amazing how many of these small businesses do have customer concentration and Jeff, if you think back through some of our biggest success stories and the companies that that we 've really had a lot of success with are really taking the companies with with lots of you know with one big customer and you know, helping the companies create a, you know, a base around that. It's not, a, it's not typically an exit event for the, for the owners, but it's helping them create the base, create the process, create the systems that, that then bring in one, another customer, another customer, another customer. I mean, you know, uh, you know, one of our, one of our favorite stories to talk about, the accurate group was very much that way. Had a big, had one big humongous customer, you know, they had some, a lot of small ones too, but it was, it was heavily dominated, probably 50% by one. And uh, the same with, uh, with Budco Financial. I mean, it was a business that, that had, uh, you know a lot of heavy concentration. And what we see is you've got a great management team, a great product, and, and they've built a wonderful system around one specific customer. And, when, and we've been able to, to kind of help them uh, or, or give them the resources, the management, the resources to really exploit that. And, and uh, so um, it's, not, it's not a death sentence, but you really have to do something about it. Because when people come in and see that you've got 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80% of your, cu- your business with one customer, it's, uh, the value is not going to be very high. Yep.
2: Yep. No, and I I think that's a good point. And everything in business, and in particular our business, I as you and I've talked about before, is about risk and return. And we feel like if we can, uh, you know, balance that risk when making a judgment call on um, on a business uh, with the return opportunity, and it was effective and uh, accurate. And we believe it's going to be very effective ultimately in Budco. But they have uh, a great management team. They actually do have you know, a lot of predictability in that business because mm-hmm. they have years and years and years of data that suggests that this is what's going to happen on uh, yep. these particular weeks and months and so on and so forth. And there is some organic growth there uh, as well. So, um, But, yeah, customer
1: concentration is a huge risk, but that doesn't mean it's a death sentence to your point. Yeah, and, and and I'll go uh, you know to the uh, um, to the running a process. I think part of the reason that um, that we part of the value in running a process for an entrepreneur is their mindset. I mean, it's this is a this is a, to bring on an equity partner or to sell a big stake in your business. Um, it, it's a huge uh, emotional period of time for that. For that uh, that person and to have an advisor there that has seen, you know, 10s, 20, 30, 40, 100 of these transactions and explain what's coming is pretty important. And, um, you know, we experience that over and over again where just, you know, the the entrepreneurs really have a tough time making some of these decisions. And I think what we'll find from uh, John Warlow is that, uh, you know. To get out in front of those decisions, understand what's going to come. Prepare your business for this, regardless of whether you want to sell it today or you know or sell it, you know, a hundred years from now if you can live that long. Um, uh, you, these are really good things to do in advance of that. It's just it's, it, it, it increases um, your knowledge base and uh, gets you prepared for when that when that day comes.
2: That's right. You had mentioned the name John Warlow, who is the guest on our show today. Uh, he And our show is the 10 things to make your business more sellable. And we became aware of John Warlow because he was the author of a book called Built to Sell, Creating a Business Can Thrive Without You, and the founder of what what's called the Sellability Score, both of which we'll talk about um Uh, on this show he uh, John will also be a part of this GroCo uh, uh, which is an Inc sponsored event Inc magazine sponsored event this year it's in uh, Nashville uh, May 20th to 22nd it's something that Brennan and I have participated in uh, over the last few years and have gotten a lot of value out of for those business owners that are looking to grow both personally and professionally and you get the opportunity to meet people like John who are very confident will will um,
1: impress you and, and, so, I, and, and, and you know from an entrepreneurial perspective entrepreneurs like to uh, to listen to other people that have been successful in business and John sure has I mean he's, he's uh, been involved in four businesses and really the uh, the understanding of how to do this when you read his book uh, you know I think uh, you know as you, I talk about EO a lot and he's a member of EO or at least was and uh, went through a um, a, I think at the time he did it was called B.O.G. Birthing of Giants. As you know, I'm uh, in my last year of what we call now E.M.P., which is the Entrepreneurial Masters Program, where they, you know, really kind of, you know, kind of plant these seeds, give you some of the tools. And John just took it to a whole new level. Uh, and, uh, and and it, his book is is a great read. It's a it's a, I use the word easy read. It's a it's a story about a, a, an entrepreneur that really transitions. Uh, his business into something that that somebody wants to buy, and all of the principles we 'll talk about today are discussed in the book in a in a very understandable manner
2: well and you know, like we like to see in a lot of our guests you know John uh prior to starting the sellability score, he started an exit for companies, including a quantitative market research business that was acquired by the corporate executive board, which is a publicly uh Uh, Traded business on on the New York Stock Exchange under CEB.
0: Easy Uh, for you to say.
2: Yeah, right. It sold out in 2008. Um, And he's been recognized by B2B Marketing as one of the top 10 business-to-business marketers in the United States. And he's an active uh, triathlete, uh, marathon runner, sportsman, um, biker, and all that sort of thing. So uh, somebody that participates in a lot of activities that that we enjoy participating in. So with that, we're going to take our first break. But as always, I wanted to uh, remind everybody about our wonderful sponsor, McGladry LLP. They're the leading provider of assurance tax, consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide. There's more than 6,700 people in 75 U.S. cities. We're going to take our first break here on the second stage. And when we come back, we'll be with our guest, John Worlow, author of Built to Sell. Thanks for tuning into the second stage.
3: This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member.
0: You are tuned in to the second stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to one 866 472 5790 That's one 866 472 5790 Or send an email to the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson.
2: Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick, and I'm here with my tag team partner, Brendan Anderson. I want to remind everyone that each week we want to provide actionable advice and have you continue the dialogue through comments and questions on our blog at evolutioncp.com. And uh, uh, also, you can ask us uh, questions through uh, at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We are with our guest, John Warlow, author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the founder of the Sellability Score. Welcome to the show, John.
4: Thanks guys. Happy to be here. Hey,
1: John, um, Thank you for joining. Hey, John. You know, you talk a lot about the the ten things to do, or that we talk, we're going to talk about the ten things to do right now. Uh, you know, if you're if you're thinking about exi- exiting your business, I mean, but if I'm not going to do it for five or ten years, why why do I need to spend any time worrying about this today?
4: You know, there's an old expression. It's a terrible expression, but nine women can't have a baby in one month.
1: <laughs> and, and of I'm course, for sure I've never of that heard that is, one before.
4: <laughs> things, some things, just take time to gestate. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, if you want to, you know, one of the keys to building a sellable company is obviously that you can't be the head salesperson in the company. You've got to hire people who can do the selling, because obviously a buyer's going to come in and say, well, how's this thing going to grow without you, the rainmaker, the owner? So you've got to hire salespeople. Well, salespeople, depending on your industry and what you sell, may take a year, 18 months, two years to get ramped up before they kind of are hitting their numbers. Um, so you can't turn around six months before you want to sell and say, oh, I better go hire some salespeople. This doesn't work that way. And there's a, a litany of other examples. Another one would, would certainly be you know, your bookkeeping, professionalizing your bookkeeping. Um, you know, Buyers come in, there's nothing that freaks out a buyer more than seeing sloppy books. So investing in an audit two or three years before you go to sell your company is just going to give you that run rate of professionalized books. You can't do it the year you want to sell
1: you know, it's funny, funny, John. I, I just uh, went up and I have a EO buddy who uh, was having trouble with his books, and I went up there and we started spending a little time on it. And um, you know, he's a guy that really felt that he thoroughly understood his books, and it turns out that there was some people taking money from him. And you know, it's amazing how often you know, you've, you know, you got this loving entrepreneur. It's, it's just what I just heard you talking about that. I'm like, you know, God. I, every entrepreneur is like, oh, I've had this you know this controller for a hundred thousand years, and and she's fantastic. And I'm like, oh boy. Um, and that's it's an interesting. You know, it's interesting, John. You know, from a from a financial control perspective, and I'm going on going on my tangent, my typical tangent, Jeff. Um, when you're looking, when you're talking to these entrepreneurs, how are the condition of most of their books? And this is a hot topic of mine, or a hot kind of a hot button of mine.
4: Yeah, I mean, most most business owners again aren't necessarily ready to sell right now, so they're just getting basic kind of notice to rear, uh, you know, financials done. And, and, of course, that doesn't necessarily uh, equate to what normalized EBITDA looks like when you go to sell your business. So, the process, what you go through when you go to actually put your business on the market, an M&A guy is going to put together a normalized profit and loss statement. And normalization just basically means that you go and look at this business as how it would perform under normal circumstances. So, for example, if you as the owner like to play golf and you have run a $20,000 golf membership through your company, um, you know, an acquirer would look at that business and say, well, you know what, we don't really – aren't going to you know, have a general manager giving them a $20,000 golf membership, so we're going to strip that out and therefore inflate the EBITDA uh, as a normalization process. Likewise, if you only pay yourself thirty grand a year because you want to fatten the profits, leave all the cash in the company – so the acquirer is going to come in and say, well, for us to hire a general manager at this level of person, it's going to cost us one hundred, one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars 200000 a year in salary. So we're going to actually stick that in the P&L and therefore deflate or, or it, it, uh, the, the, the profit of the company in the process of normalizing it. So you know, you're going to go through that normalization process as you go to prepare your business to
1: sell it. i got to tell you, John, when I listen to you talk, I mean, if I have – I mean I would say that 9 out of 10 people small business owners that we talk to about investing in their business or whatever and, we, and you know they're taking out a half a million dollars and I would say that 95% of them say that they could replace themselves for 100 or 100 and a quarter. And it always makes me chuckle because I'm like well god if you if you really can replace yourself for 100 100,000 bucks you should just take the other 400 and have that person do it. I mean it's um is it your experience that people tend to discount the the cost to replace themselves?
4: Sure. Uh, You know, I think a lot of business owners look at their company and say, uh, well, you know, operationally I you know I, I could I could bring someone in, a middle level person to kind of operationally run the company. What they're often of course ignoring is the intangibles, the spirit the entrepreneur brings, the energy, the enthusiasm, the leadership, the culture, the brand, all of those things that are a lot less tangible. Uh, you know, sure someone could sign a check, someone could open the door in the morning and lock it up at night, but it's the tangible stuff that entrepreneurs often, I agree with you, uh, typically discount or, or just fail to, to realize the impact they're having on the business.
1: Hey, John, and I apologize. Do me one favor. I, I love you – know, and I think most entrepreneurs love to hear the story of, of, of your background and how you ended up um, – you know, and you do a good job kind of explaining that in the, in the beginning of the book. Uh, but I'd love to you know, maybe take a quick second and, and learn about how, you know, why, did you, why did you write Built to Sell? What, you know, how did the idea come to you?
4: Yeah, I've been involved, I guess, in four businesses. You guys said it in the outset, all of which, uh, you know, have skinned my knees, done every mistake that there is. Uh, one of them, I can remember, I, I went to sell it. Uh, it. It was a fairly good-sized company. I went to an M&A guy, and I said, you know, uh, you know what's it worth? And he asked me a couple of questions. He said, number one, uh, who does the selling? And at the time, I was still involved in some of the selling. Uh, and number two, who does the work? And I was still involved in kind of uh, approving some of the work. And he looked to be square in the eye. And he said, "I can't sell your business. There's nothing to sell. Your business is you. <laughs> and you know, this is a you know multi-million dollar company, profits, big you know blue chip clients. Yet we we had nothing to sell. And so that." Galvanized sort of a, a workflow where, for about five years, we we migrated the business from what was something I call a sell-do business, where you kind of sell it, do it, and you tr- go, go try to reinvent yourself again, to a subscription-based company. It ultimately, uh, was acquired, and uh, and so that's that you know that experience, along with the other you know three uh, companies I've been involved in, uh, led me to write the book. And, and again, the idea. Is how does an owner operator, uh, someone, a guy or gal who's, who's got a great business, you know, driving good sales, good revenue, but it's probably too dependent on them personally. How do you migrate it to becoming a sellable asset as opposed to, you know, a lifestyle business?
1: And uh, John, uh, Jeff, and I are, are going through that at Evolution right now. It's very interesting because you know, if you think about a private equity business and you know, dependent upon the uh, you know the the partners and so forth, and creating the processes and so forth, to kind of you know, it's uh, it's I'm not you know, we, we have a long way to go, but it's uh, it's been a, it's been fun to dream about. Um, <clears throat> let, let, let's spend a little time going through some of the uh, some of the uh, the ten things that you suggest, I and mean, one of the things that we. we uh, what you discuss is uh, you know, in customer contracts having a survivor clause. Maybe tell me what that is.
4: This is a fun little uh, quirky thing, but uh, you know, everyone listening, every business owner listening has contracts. Most of them have contracts with their customers, hopefully. Some would have with them with suppliers. Uh, in, the, in the fine print, the six-point font, what you're looking for is a statement that says the obligations of this contract survive the change of ownership of this company. That way, that if you are acquired, if an acquirer does come in and buy your business, um, you, your suppliers, your customers cannot use the change of ownership of your company as a way to wiggle out of the commitments they've made to you. That's one of those little... Uh, you know, very small little tips, uh, you can, uh, you can leverage, uh, as you, as you prepare your business. Probably, you know, before that though, you, you really want to focus, I think, on reoccurring revenue. Um, this idea that, again, a lot of business owners, when they go to sell their company, they're saying, Man, you know, uh, I'd love to be, you know, we've got a great name in the community. We've got a great brand. We've got a great reputation. Uh, we won the industry award three years running. They want to look to the past for evaluation and have people value them on what they've done in the past. Whereas when an acquirer comes into the buy of the business, it's your finish line. It's their starting line. And what they want to know is what's this business going to do in the future? So if you can demonstrate recurring revenue through subscriptions or annuity streams, any way that you can demonstrate the business is going to continue when you ride off into the sunset, you know, that's where you're going to get the higher valuation.
1: And maybe, and it's funny because um, you know, we we hear the term uh, recurring revenue, you know, over and over again, and we, and we obviously use it here at Evolution and, and so forth. Um, you know, you do a pretty good job, and you know, a great job in your book, talking about how Alex, the business owner, transitioned his business from what was you know kind of perceived as a project or kind of a specific uh, you know to to something that an owner could could you know could Better predict the future cash flows. Maybe, maybe talk about that, you know, transition or or give me an example of of how that works. Because I think it's it's hard for a lot of entrepreneurs to grasp, and is they just kind of know their traditional business.
4: Yeah, for sure. So there's ten different subscription models, and I happen to have them top of mind. I'm just actually finishing a manuscript (laughs) on a new book that's uh, that's that's got me knee deep in subscription models. But there's basically ten different uh, different ones. I'll give you a a couple of examples. Um, You know, one is the maintenance contract where, let's say you clean carpets for in-businesses, right? So if you're a carpet cleaner, you could go in, do a great job of cleaning somebody's carpet, send them an invoice, and then kind of wait for the phone to ring. And if you're like most people who run an office, you might remember if somebody, you know, if there's dog hair on the office carpet, you might remember to bring the office, you know, carpet cleaners back in, but you probably won't, and you probably wait way too long to bring them back in. Well, if you're smart, you build a maintenance contract in. So you say, look, you've got other things to worry about is how clean are your carpets, Mr. and Mrs. Business Owner. Let us do a maintenance contract. Whatever two weeks, whatever all the, you know, when the office is closed at night, we'll come in and clean the carpets. Mosquito Squad is another great example of a company in an industry, a personal service industry, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to being on a subscription. So, Mosquito Squad, if you don't know, they go spray a chemical in your backyard so you don't get mosquitoes, and they do it on a regular kind of basis. Again, you can do it on a one-off basis. Have them come in when you've got a you know dinner party you've got planned, and you don't want to burn all those CinnDella candles, or. You can hire Mosquito Scott on an annual contract that just keeps renewing. And the implicit agreement with the subscriber is we're giving you permission to come to our backyard and spray every two weeks. We don't have to call you. So in virtually every business, from professional services to personal services uh, to software, obviously, hardware, there's a subscription model you can find.
1: It's interesting. It, 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 it's I, and one thing I love about like you know some of the uh, EO uh, or some of these you hang around some of these small business owners and it's how they figured out how to do that because uh, you know it, it you just wouldn't think of uh, of having somebody just come spray your backyard for mosquitoes although when you know when you're out there you wish that they had already done that so uh, that's John maybe give me give me one you've got the ten give, give me one more of your kind of favorites that maybe people you know that the average entrepreneur doesn't just think of right out of the gate.
4: Sure. So, you know, if you've got a, an expertise in your industry uh, and you think you do your industry better than anybody else, um, you can set up an industry specific membership website where you share some of the insights you've learned with other people in your industry. Let me give you an example. Uh, DanceStudioOwner.com is a membership website where uh, it is run by a woman named Kathy and Kathy, and, and Kathy and her mom know about running dance studios. They have one up in, in the Northeast United States. I think it's New Hampshire. You know, a, a small facility where they teach little kids how to do ballet dancing and jazz dancing and so forth. Well, she you know, blows all the industry metrics away. And she doesn't compete with the ballet dancing studios in the, all the other cities that, she, that, she, uh, that are out there. And so she set up a membership website where ballet dancer or dance studios can subscribe for a few hundred dollars a year. For the information that they have about running a dance studio, the templates, the tools, the worksheets, the, you know, the industry metrics, how to do it, the kind of just add water recipe. So it's a membership website, so they get revenue off the membership website, but what they also get is information about what dance studio owners want and care about. And in many subscription models, it's the information that makes the company valuable. So valuable, in the case of Dance Studio Owner, that they were acquired by Revolution DanceWare, an Inc. 500 winner, one of the fastest-growing, most successful dancewear companies. Kathy had run her dance studio for 40 years and never wow. received an acquisition offer. But the blog, the membership website, was five years old when it was acquired by Revolution Danceware. Subscription companies are imminently viable, acquirable. People want them.
1: That's great and a dance studio, yeah, you yeah, it, <laughs> That's yeah awesome. and
2: it's it's that predictability that uh, that Brendan and I uh, keep talking about uh, we are going to take another brief break here on the second stage and be back shortly to continue the topic ten things to make your business more sellable with our guest John Worlow author of built to sell creating a business that can thrive without you and the founder of the sellability score thanks for tuning in to the second
3: stage.
0: In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget patience. Let's sell something with host Ty Mayner. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 PM Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the second stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to the second stage at evolutioncp.com. Now back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second
2: Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick and I'm here with my partner. Uh, This is our show, but it is a forum, so we're looking for input from you so that we can benefit from everyone's experience. Uh, please uh, uh, continue the conversation on our blog at evolutioncp.com or uh, send a question in on our uh, second stage email at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. We're here with our guest, John Worlow, author of Built to Sell and the founder of the Sellability Score. Uh, hey, John, I wanted to lead in with a question about uh, the Net Promoter Score. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about what, what that's all about
4: measure your customer satisfaction that is predictive of your future growth and you know a lot of people will listening to this saying yeah i know my customers i look at them in the eye the whites of the eye every day i don't need to do some you know highfalutin customer satisfaction survey i get it um But what I'd love you to think about is that as you grow and you go past the second stage and through the second stage, I should say, you're going to stop being the direct face of your customer base, and you're going to start relying on employees and so forth to be that front line. That's when you lose touch with your customer base, and so that triggers people to want to do a customer satisfaction survey. The problem with most customer sat surveys is that they don't predict anything. Frederick Weichel, the guy who wrote The Loyalty Effect and done more thinking in this area than anyone else, uh, just found out that, that just doing customer satisfaction surveys, the questions we usually ask have nothing to do with whether your business will likely go on and grow. When he looked at it, he discovered one question that if asked correctly – You can actually predict the future of of your business because it predicts two customer behaviors. Number one, your customers will refer you. And number two, talking about reoccurring revenue, your customers will repurchase from you. And Mm -hmm. so the answer to this question is the best predictor of your future growth. And the question you just need to ask your, your customers is easy. It's on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend or colleague? And then you bucket your respondents into three buckets. Your promoters are your 9s and 10s. Your passives are your 7s and 8s. And your detractors are your zeros to sixes. And if you subtract your percentage of detractors from your percentage of promoters, you get your net promoter score. And so the average in the United States is 10 to 15%. But there are some worldwide leaders in this space. They are Harley-Davidson, Google, eBay, Amazon, uh, USAA. They all achieve a north of 50% net promoter score. So wow. you know this number because it is predictive of your future growth. And by the way, almost all of our acquirers, the people who go out and buy businesses, strategically at least, use this methodology in their own business. So if you use Rackspace to host your website, you'll get a survey every 90 days that says on a scale of 0 to 10, how likely are you to recommend us? There's a reason they're asking you that question, because it predicts their future growth.
1: That's great. Jeff, you write that down? Yeah, I did. I you do my did my hand you sore, understand it? John? Yeah, yeah. John, it's embarrassing. We we were writing furiously because we had no idea what it was. So uh we everyone, that's why we have these shows, Jeff, so we can actually potentially learn something. Possibly we always learn something. Um, you know, John, you, there's the there's the net promoter score, and then there's then there's the your um your uh, thing which is the sellability um index or the sellability score. Sure. Your, Tell me the difference. Tell me, tell me what, what, tell me the difference between the two, and tell me, uh, um, you know, kind of how you came up with, uh, with that.
4: Yeah, sellability score measures the sellability of your company, and it's one of those acid tests of whether you want to sell your business in five years or twenty-five years. The ultimate acid test of a business is would somebody walk in tomorrow and buy it? That's the acid test, I believe, of a successful business, and that's what we measure at SellabilityScore.com. What we've discovered is that those people, those businesses that achieve a sellability score of 80 or above, will typically go on to sell and get a premium of 71% over the average business that takes a sellability score. So if you're able to achieve 80%, it's a a score out of 100. So if you're able to achieve a score of 80 or above, you're statistically likely to get an offer that is 71% greater than the average business. And so you know, there are uh, eight key drivers that we look at in, that drive the sellability of your company. Uh, there are some of the ones that we've talked about already. One of them is reoccurring revenue. Another one we haven't spoken much about is hub and spoke. It's one of the eight key drivers, and it measures the extent to which your business is relying on you, the owner. And the hub and spoke is as is simple as you've ever flown in the O'Hare Airport in a snowstorm. You know that when a hub in a hub-and-spoke model, breaks down, the entire system breaks down. And so a hub manager is someone that insists that all communication goes through him or her. If the owner is a hub-and-spoke manager, it means customers have to go to the owner for approval on deals. Uh, Employees have to go to the owner for permission to take a vacation. Everything goes in and out of the owner. And if that's your business, you're going to score low on hub-and-spoke. Whereas if you've done... The inverse, you built what Michael Gerber terms, you know, working on, not in your business. If you've been able to do that, uh, then you're going to score well on hub and spoke. So that's one of the eight drivers that we, uh, that we measure in the sellability score. But yeah, if you're able to get a score of eight years above, uh, you're going to see a 71% of premium in the value of your company.
1: John, I, I don't want you know. I, uh, if uh, I'd love to hear a couple more of the drivers. I mean, the, the hub and spoke. The, I've never heard of it referred as hub and spoke. Quite frankly, you know, one of the things that we always have trouble with is trying to. You know, explain to you. Know, you know, I, I said if I had a ten bucks for every time an, an entrepreneur told me that they were uh, that they that, that the company could run without them, and then you get in the business and you ask the first five people who makes all the decisions, and the person says, you know, it's it's Bob. You know, when when Bob's not here, we have to text him and get the answers. It it's just you know, it's like they don't see that they don't. Um, what what are what are some of the other things that you see as the key drivers or the in, in the in the sellability score?
4: Yeah, one of the other eight is the Switzerland structure. And so <laughs> the, the, the name, the Switzerland structure, comes from the country of Switzerland, which, as you know, has a, has a, a fanatical obsession with remaining independent. So they never joined either of the world wars. They didn't send troops to Iraq. They, they didn't even join the United Nations. Uh, until they had a, a, a countrywide referendum on whether or not to join the United Nations. They, they ultimately did, but they have this obsession with not cozying up with any regime. And, and, and as business owners, we have to take the same obsession with independence when we think about our company and its dependence on any one customer, employee, or supplier. So think about being Switzerland. You always want to structure your business so that you're not overly dependent on a single customer, so you've got good diversification in your customer set. Number two, on any single employee, so you can't be held hostage by a single you know, great salesperson or a great operations person or a great CTO. You've got good diversity in your employee set. And third, suppliers. You don't want to be buying 90% of your supply from one supplier that can hold you ransom uh, on pricing and so forth. You, you want, to the extent that you can, diversify your supplier sources so that you're not held uh, you know, hand, ransom to any one supplier. So the Switzerland structure is, again, one of the other eight. I-
2: you know uh, i was I was reading through your blog as I was preparing for the show, John, and the one thing that I thought uh might be a little out of the company's control is protecting the gross margin. I certainly appreciate your point about you know you, you don't you want to grow revenue by reducing price and 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 that sort of thing but you know sometimes in an industry you're going to get some crazy competitor in there that's trying to do it to you and <laughs> you have to try to you know protect your customers is there are you seeing or hearing things that people are doing out there as effective ways to to kind of manage the the risk of protecting their gross margin
4: yeah warren buffett talks about investing in businesses That have a deep and wide moat. Of course, he's using the analogy of a castle where you've got a protective moat around your business. And your protective moat that allows you to control your gross margins is your marketing differentiation. If you're you're responding to RFPs and you define yourself the way your industry defines itself, then you are going to get ground down to, to nothing in the way of margins. You're ultimately going to get commoditized. But if you invest in marketing and and really make a differentiated value proposition it triggers this domino effect where you've got Pricing control because you're different. You can't buy what you sell from five other people because you've branded it. You know, you've done a really good job of that. Uh, that gives you pricing authority. You've got pricing authority. You can invest. You get more margin. You've got more margin. You can invest more in marketing. You get more differentiation. You can control your pricing even further. And it trickles this this domino effect uh, of of being different in the marketplace. Uh, your dollar shade club has done a great job of differentiating you know their business they as you probably know sell razor blades on subscription and they're competing against you know Gillette and Schick or whatever they, the uh, the name of that company is i can't say on the radio and they and they <laughs> are uh, and they're differentiating themselves. But when you look under the covers of Dollar Shave Club, they're hawking somebody's blade. They, that, there's a manufacturer that they, uh, that they use, a Korean company that they use to sell those. But, but they don't brand them the Korean company. They brand them Dollar Shave Club because they want to control their margins. The more control over the margins, the better pricing authority they have in the market.
1: That's great, <laughs> yeah I know. i love it. Hey, uh, John, i I noticed in in um, in one of your suggestions here you uh suggest to write a teaser you know a, a teaser which in in our industry we're pretty used to, which is something that you know that uh, that a uh investment banking or, or a professional would send to potential interested parties that kind of summarizes what the business looks like um it, it's something i never thought about, but maybe talk about you know why somebody would you know would would start preparing their own teaser you know far in advance of of or uh, considering selling their company.
2: Yeah, sure. and, and what, what and what should be in there? What should be in the teaser? Yeah, 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 no, no problem. So
4: I, I just to back up a little bit. You mentioned EO in your intro. Um, I used to be a member of EO. Now more than a decade ago. And I remember one of the guys that used to come to our form chapter meetings, he had this little tiny piece of paper folded up eights. it it was just a tiny little square. He used to unfold it at each one of our form meetings. So eventually I kind of asked him, you know, we meet once a month. So eventually I asked him, like, what's the paper? What are you writing down here? What is this thing you carry around with you in in your pocket? He said, oh, this is my teaser. And I said, why do you carry that around? He said, well, it just helps me think about my business through the lens of an acquirer. And so a teaser, he ultimately went on to sell that business very successfully and it, it you know, it's always stuck with me that you have gotta have this, this lens of your business. Not only operationally of how your customers would view your business, but also through the lens a supplier, uh, an acquirer would. And so a teaser is a one page document that an M&A professional would send anonymously. They'd pull out your company name so that they wouldn't know who you are. But they'd send them to potential buyers. And on the page, on the teaser, there would be some basic information about your company. So, you know, basically, broadly, what industry are you in, how much revenue have you generated, you know, profit, growth rate, etc. And it would also go on to describe, you know, the key management team, maybe a couple trophy clients that you've got or customers, um, maybe some IP, some technology that you know is differentiating. It's really your brag sheets. That you would put out there in the marketplace to get someone interested enough in you to sign a confidentiality agreement to learn about you in more detail. And so, you know, once you write this sheet, I think it helps you refer back to big strategic decisions in your company and say, yeah, but if we, if we make this change or buy this company or, you know, change the way we're selling, how would, you know, strategic company acquirer A look at our business differently if we made that decision? So it's just a fun little way you can kind of keep top of mind, even if you're selling in 10 years, you know, how would an acquirer look at my business? Um, so, yeah, those are some of the things, revenue, profitability, uh, key customers. Uh, I mean, you guys do this. What else have you seen on, uh, on, on teaser sheets?
1: I, you know I we, we love when there you know you've kind of touched on some of that stuff, you know the, you know there's no you know you know customer diversification, uh you know, they always try to pitch some sort of recurring revenue, whether it's recurring or not,
2: <laughs> which is hard. I, our- I, I always I was gonna say hockey
1: stick projections <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, th- and that's a great idea. And, and I just think it, it, it's a great way to kind of say, look, if I was looking at the, if my business objectively, would, is this something that I would want to buy? And it's very, very difficult for uh, for entrepreneurs to to take that view of their business because it's you know it's their baby, they they love it, it's pro- providing typically a very very nice lifestyle for them, and it's hard to uh, you know hard to put an outside value on it. Very difficult. I mean, from from their they- perspective.
2: Yeah. Hey, John, you you do have a a workshop, correct? It's it's the built to sell workshop. Uh, How would somebody register for for that program?
4: You know what, we, we, uh, that actually came up in February, so that's, that's no longer uh, something that, uh, that, that that's kind of come and gone, which was, uh, which was a fun thing. I think the best way for people to, to sort of take action on some of the things we've spoken about today is, is simply to go to sellabilityscore.com and, and get their sellability score. It takes about 13 minutes to ask, answer the questions, and you'll instantly get your score and, again, if you do get your score, if you're able to achieve a score of 80 or above, you're statistically predicted to go on to sell at a 71% premium over the average business. So, yeah, that's available. Uh, there's no cost associated with getting your score. It's uh, sellabilityscore.com.
2: And obviously, we also recommend our listeners buy the book, Built to Sell, Creating a Business That Can Thrive Without You. And, uh, John, great answers to our questions. We really appreciate having you on the show. Uh, This is what makes the show very enjoyable for for not only Brendan and I but our listeners to have people on here that understand the material as well as you do.
4: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks, John. And with that, we're going to take a short pause uh, at, here at the second stage, and be back to share some concluding thoughts about today's topic: ten things to make your business more sellable. Thanks for tuning into the second stage.
4: hear a dog barking or an angel singing then you know that you're listening to waking up in america heard every wednesday at 3 pacific time valerie kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential adventure is always a must
3: on waking up in america with valerie kirkgaard every wednesday at 3 pacific this is davis love the third rider cup captain and team mcgladry member
2: Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadillac, and I'm here with my partner, Brendan Anderson. Today's topic was 10 things to make your business more sellable with our guest, John Worlow, author of Built to Sell and the founder of the Sellability Score. Uh, And he had suggested there at the end of the last segment that you go to the Sellability Score website. Uh, The survey takes about 13 minutes to respond to all the questions. Uh, and if you can achieve at least an 80% uh, score on a hundred-point scale, uh, that you have a high likelihood of selling your business for at least a 71% premium, which is a good premium, Brendan.
1: Probably worth uh, the effort. You know, if you if you take a look at uh, what you think your business is worth, and if you can take that up by yeah. uh, by 71%, that's that's probably decent, probably a <laughs> decent investment. I don't know. You know, I guess some people have different expectations and so forth. I'll tell you, Jeff. You know we've met uh, John um, a couple times and um he knows his stuff and uh he he he's got a he obviously can present it extremely well his thoughts are organized it's a it is it's uh it's fun to talk to him and and I felt like every single time we were working down an, an avenue that could almost be an entire show. Uh, I think we made it through like four or five or probably two or three of his uh ten um, things uh to do right now. So please go check that out on on his blog and 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 as you mentioned earlier, the the book is a it's a very easy read. It's enjoyable and it really does kind of put you know it, it, it instead of telling you what to do, it's it's a great story of how you know of how to go about doing stuff. So. Um, you know, and one of the things that we had learned about you know before was you know really a lot of these concepts you know came from you know some of the things that he's he learned just talking to entrepreneurs and then obviously you know taking seeing what others did and doing it himself, which is you know quite frankly Jeff, how we learned too so that's yeah. uh that's great. Yeah. You know, and as we know, the best advice comes from
2: those that have done it before. And he's bought and sold successfully four businesses, and then he's gone on to uh, build these other other. Uh, the author and built uh, or founded the Sellability Score, and you know, just little nuances, things that are fairly simple to do that don't cost you anything, like including the survivor clause in in customer contracts. As you and I know, when you're buying a business, particularly through an ad. Asset sales structure, getting all those contracts renegotiated is a major, major, major hassle and does put the seller in kind of a a difficult position because now the customer has – has the tiger by the tail, not the tiger by the tail, but, you know, the tail by the dog, tail oh, by the yeah. dog. By
1: the, and, is, is, like you that? know, a lot of times, you know, from, from companies we've looked at, when you're asking a major, major, major company to change a contract, those things don't happen quickly. And, you know, they get, you know, sometimes it could take months. Sometimes it just doesn't happen. Sometimes the request is, um, is, is, is too big of a burden. And so, um, and, we, and we face that, in most of the deals we look at, where where you look at a contract, you look at a think about registrations, thinks about licenses, and, and those sorts of things, which in some of those things you can't do a whole lot about, but they're things that you need to be aware of. Um, you know, I I was reading through some, I uh, was talking to some entrepreneurs today, Jeff, and just another another thing that you know that a lot of entrepreneurs will promote as a positive that you and I frequently have trouble looking at as a positive is. Um, you know There are minority business um, enterprises and women-owned enterprises and some of those things which help them get government contracts, large company contracts, and that's great for their business. But when it comes to selling the business – um, it is a huge uh, hurdle because fundamentally, uh, you know, it, it eliminates a lot of buyers. So, in, if you're a minority-owned business, you know, the ultimate buyer's got to be probably minority. If you're if you're a woman-owned business, the same thing. And so, it, it's you got to be aware of those things. And, and again, I have a, a friend of my uh, EO group, um, my forum group, who who uh, uses some of those uh, designations to his benefit, but uh, it does reduce the ability to sell the business someday.
2: It, it does, but you know, it plays to one of his points in the sellability score, which is the hub and spoke, and mm-hmm. and so that he, he says it a different way than we've always said it. Where the businesses that we uh, look at are ones that tend to still rely on the founder, where the founder's not yet independent of the business, which is what. You know this hub and spoke concept that he has in his sellability score. And to your point about the minority-owned, women-owned businesses, they need to use that runway that they've got to make the businesses so that those customers stick with them, regardless of the color of their skin or, or their gender, so on and so forth. You know, you can tell somebody like John is such an expert because you know our listeners have to realize that much of what we do on this show is just talking and conversing, and with some <laughs> preparation, but but the, the too much preparation really ruins it, uh, and and so I had offered that question about the gross margin, and I just loved his answer about the deep and wide and investing in, you know, marketing and creating a differentiated message about your product and a differentiated value proposition um, as the best way to protect your gross margin and um and that doesn't happen overnight that's something that obviously we invest heavily in here at evolution because we think we are different we think we've got a very good value proposition and uh the people that we want to partner with we want them to know all about that sort of stuff
1: i uh i agree it's uh it's good i mean it's in uh, in i it's funny i when you asked the question i i didn't know where he would go with that and I thought his answer was just was just right. spot on. I mean, I was kind of going, oh, God, how do you answer that question? You know, if I, but the but the point is, and you know, it's funny too, Jeff. Is I, you know, I, as you know, I I was talking to an entrepreneur this week, and you know, they when we hear people say we have this RFP out, we have this RFP, you know, we've got you know, this one's coming in June, we have this one coming in July. It's yes, it's business. Yes, we're looking forward to it. Yes, it's it's a positive thing, but it doesn't separate you from anybody else in the world. I mean, it just makes you. Uh, a, a commodity business like everybody else that's going to put in that RFP. Very interesting. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, you know, one other thing, and then we actually have to finish the show, is this net promoter score. This is something you can do, you know, pretty easily where uh, you rank your customers or the customers rank you zero to ten in terms of how likely it would refer to, you know, you as a company to one of their friends or uh um, uh, partners and then nine to ten was a promoter seven to eight was passive a zero to six was a detractor and that you are trying to uh obviously get a score as as high as possible and uh, that's again that's something that you can do on your own so we're going to shift towards the end of this show uh and this is your t- Chance yeah, to I'm, shine, Brendan. I'm. A,
1: I, I, I'm. I think we got to turn out the lights because the party's over. I got nothing. I swear <laughs> to God, I, I'm actually on the website right now, rhyming, S- sell value. I'm like, I'm. I'm am i I'm a mess, dude. I'm a mess. So I'll, all just right. uh, all I can say is, uh, is the, you know, the the last two shows in particular, in particular, been on this topic. And please educate yourself on on this on this topic. It is very important whether you want to sell your business or whether you want to live to a hundred and hold it the whole entire time. Well, we hope
2: you have enjoyed today's show and join us again next Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Uh, And look, think about what you want your business to be, not what it is today, and have passion for possibilities. Thanks for tuning in to The Second Stage.
0: Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week.